So everybody, welcome to our panel on nuclear and uranium and their intersections with the market, sponsored by Sky Harbor Resources, ticker SYH. Given that this is a sponsored space, it's important to note some of the terms of the space. So while our speakers are getting up here, and since this will be recorded and released as a podcast later today, I'll read a few of those now. This space is not financial advice. The stock market is risky, and any trader investment is expected to have some or total loss. Please do your own research before taking any trade and do not use this information for financial decisions or for investing. Additionally, Unusual Whales is not responsible for any given promotion and does not verify the authenticity of the promotion or partnership nor the merits of the individual promotion. There's no direct endorsement. So please, again, do your own due diligence and research before following any one promoted post or podcast. So now to kind of jump into things, we've still got a few speakers that need to come up. I know we're having some invite issues as well. But as those who frequent these panels know, I like to keep them very open for discussion. So as we go to all of our panelists today, please feel free to chime in and discuss openly, add your own thoughts to any given topic. The only request that I have is that you use that cute little hand raise emoji that Twitter Spaces has so we can avoid any any microphone overlap or background noise. And as I kind of go through introductions here, please feel free to plug anything you're working on and feel free to pin it to the top of the space as well. So we've got a number of speakers in the nuclear space with a lot of experience and expertise. And I'm pretty excited to learn a lot today because this is something I personally don't know a ton about. So we'll go ahead and start us off here We've got Jordan Trimble, the president and CEO of Sky Harbor, today's sponsor. Sky Harbor is a uranium exploration and early stage development company with an extensive portfolio of uranium exploration projects in Canada's Athabasca Basin. Sky Harbor's goal is to maximize shareholder value through new mineral discoveries, committed long-term partnerships in the advancement of exploration projects in geopolitically favorable jurisdictions. Now, Jordan, thank you so much for sponsoring us today, and thanks for joining us to lend your own expertise. How are you doing? I'm great. Well, thank you very much for putting this on. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, I see some familiar names in the uh, in the chat here in the space is so looking forward to uh, this discussion and uh, talking a little bit about our company and where we fit in all of this, but uh, you know, also discussing uh, why uranium is so exciting right now, why nuclear is in this resurgence or renaissance, and we've got some uh, great uh, contributors here to do just that. Really excited myself. Thanks again. Next, we've got Nick Turin, a nuclear engineer with a PhD in nuclear engineering. Nick has vast expertise in nuclear reactor design and development and is an expert as well on nuclear history. He's the founder of whatisnuclear.com. Nick is dedicated to fighting climate change and educating about the capabilities and potential of nuclear energy. I'm really excited to have you and your expertise here today as well, Nick. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah, really happy to be here. I really enjoyed the the community around this space. Um, love talking to people uh, on X. And um, yeah, I, I just I, I 
struggle to choose between posting ancient reactor news versus uh, new reactor news. So, <laughs> well, uh, I, I suppose most people are interested in the, the more recent stuff. But anyway, very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Very happy to have you. And I'll definitely be picking your brain later on in the panel about <laughs> some differences historically between modern reactors and, and historical. Great. Yeah, so hey, everyone. This is uh, Jennifer Avellaneda. Most of you know me as Nuclear Hazelnut. And I'm also very happy to be here. Uh, on the contrary of Nick, <laughs> I actually enjoy talking about our current technology, although I'm uh, very excited about what's coming. You know, small motor reactors, micro reactors, and uh, all the technology that we soon be able to use and see it as normal. <laughs> so I'm very happy to be here. Really happy to have you as well, Jennifer. I'm excited to get your your safety take uh, as your probabilistic risk assessment experience in nuclear engineering. So I'm really excited to have you here as well, Jennifer. Thank you. Next, we've got the uranium corgi. I've been watching the memes all week. A longstanding presence in the online uranium and nuclear investment circles and a true uranium meme aficionado, Corgi shares information and market developments in the sector with retail traders and investors. And I, I really got to say, Corgi, your, your level of memory is definitely unrivaled out there. So I'm really excited to get some of your retail take here. Welcome and thank you for coming. I couldn't agree more. Next, Hello? we've got. Hey, we got. Hey, hey, thanks. That was a great intro. I, I wasn't sure how you were going to do that. that. That was great. Thank you. I was kind of hoping that the meowing was going to be the. Of the Maybe we should get them in on the interview to, to give some good input. Next, we've got the Uranium Insider himself, Justin Hoon. Justin Hoon is a leading expert in the Uranium investment sector. The founder of Uranium Insider, Justin uses rigorous fundamental and technical analysis to make determinations on Uranium companies to project in his Uranium Insider focus list. With an inception to date performance nearing 500%, I'm pretty excited to have your unique market vision here, Justin, to discuss how current catalysts may affect the uranium sector as a whole. So welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me today. All right, everybody. I know we might have a couple more speakers joining later on Twitter spaces unwithstanding. So before we get started, let's get kind of a quick macro overview with uranium and with the markets as a whole. Now, the consumer price index came in hot at 3.1% versus an expected 2.9%, with core CPI up 3.9% versus the estimated 3.7%. The topic at hand here, uranium spot price has doubled since this time last year and actually rose as high as 106 in the last few de days, with the discussion of supply and demand remaining a really hot topic within the sector. Now, since last year, in general, uranium has really been on a solid upward trajectory, reaching highs that honestly haven't been seen since around 2007. So now to kind of get us started here, Jordan, and then I want to kick this to the panel as a whole as well. What is your outlook for uranium now in 2024 and kind of what puts Sky Harbor on the map for investors in the space? Yeah, great. Well, we'll, we'll start with the macro commentary. And um, 
like you said, it, it's been the best performing commodity over the last year. Um, it's uh, obviously increased quite significantly prices we haven't seen since the mid 2000s. And really, there's a, a confluence of factors that are driving this increasing price. We've, you know, we saw it kind of surge last fall and right into the new year here. It's been volatile the last few weeks and uh, I'm sure we'll we'll get into that discussion here and, and what, what we can expect going forward. But I think it's important to kind of take a step back and first and foremost, um, look at the underlying supply demand fundamentals because that's really what's um, been one of the main driving forces for this price increase. So you've got um, a demand side that is uh, quite durable. It's increasing, it's improving the sentiment around nuclear as I'm sure we'll talk about, has drastically improved over the course of the last you know, several years in particular as there's very aggressive decarbonization objectives and goals globally. We just saw at the COP28 conference in Dubai, 28 nations now sign a pledge to triple nuclear capacity by 2050. So we know the demand side's there. We talked or brought up briefly the SMRs. Um, that's going to be potentially a massive new emerging market and source of nuclear fuel demand going forward. But if we just look at the current operable reactors globally, well over 430 of them, sit over 60 under construction globally, hundreds more ordered, planned, and proposed. That's that's not accounting for any SMR, new SMR demand in the, in the decades to come. So we've got this growing uh, and quite robust uh, demand side in the backdrop of a primary mine supply side of the equation that's questionable and challenged right now. So we've seen the demand continue to grow at about 190 to 200 million pounds of uranium a year. Uh, and the and, and the primary mine supply, we're only producing about 150 to 160 million pounds. So there's been this stress on the supply side uh, over uh, the course of the last six or seven years. Uh, secondary supplies in the market have met that secondary or met that supply deficit over you know the, the the last number of years those secondary supplies are dwindling you've got other factors at play too financial entities like the sprott physical trust yellow cake other hedge funds that are uh, sequestering material as well and so uh, you you basically have a situation where the underlying demands uh, supply demand fundamentals for this commodity are really some of the most compelling that there are of any commodity out there. And that's one of the main reasons uh, that we're seeing this, this market move higher. And it's being exacerbated by, you know, uh, geopolitical issues globally. We can, we can talk about that a little bit, that the market, uh, the uranium market, the nuclear fuel market, bifurcating east versus west and Western utilities and, and uh, nuclear plant uh, operators are going to have to start sourcing more material from Western suppliers. Again, that's where Sky Harbor, for example, is a, a leading exploration and early stage development and prospect generator business with projects in Canada. We have a role to play there, um, finding the next generation of uh, deposits, high grade uranium deposits in the Athabasca Basin and, and, and helping to delineate resources and de-risk those so they can be developed uh, into new producing mines. And so it's a very um, interesting inflection point for this commodity after years of a bear market. We've come out the other side, and I think there's still a lot of runway. Tim Gitzel, the, the president and CEO of Cameco, I think said it best when he said, we've never uh, been this early on in a cycle with prices as high as they are.
Thank you, Jordan. Does anybody else have anything they want to add to that about their 2024 outlook before we dive into the nitty gritty? Feel free to speak candidly, anybody. I suppose I can jump in here. I think Jordan said it pretty well, um, just giving a, a broad overview of where, you're, where we're at. And I think if there's anything I would add to it is that it's kind of a, a classic commodity supply and demand story, but there's some very important differences with uranium compared to uh, certain other commodities that might have supply side be able to respond a lot faster to a rising price environment. The uranium sector is a little bit different. Um, uranium mines can sometimes take 10 to 20 plus years from, from deposit discovery to actually producing yellow cake in a can, the U308, the first element of the fuel cycle. And supply just cannot respond very quickly to a rising price. So even though we've seen the price, as you mentioned, double in the past 12 months and uh, almost double in, in the past four or five months, really, it's been a very, very steep rise that a lot of the reason for that rise has to do with purchasing coming from the actual end users in the space. Yes, there is some participation by financial entities buying a little bit of material in the spot market. Producers have been doing a little bit of buying, but really what we're looking at is a is a pretty straight up fundamental supply and demand story. The big difference being uranium can't respond very quickly. So we have this sort of unique period of time right now where there's a 30 to 50 pound, uh, 30 to 50 million pound supply deficit on an annual basis at the very least for the next few years until and unless we see new very large mines come online to bring new supply to this market and of course replace some of the supply that's going to be declining over the coming years from the existing producing mines. Um, so we, we have a, a period of time here where we're just not going to see enough supply respond quickly enough. It's it's pretty clear to model that out at this point. So um, where the price goes, I think it's not really going to make sense. We arguably don't need to go that much higher to incentivize projects. But even with incentive price there, with sufficient capital there, we're going to have to see sustained high prices for, for some time to see sufficient supply come online. So it should be a pretty interesting few years going ahead. Thank you, Justin. So kind of just on that same vein of, of topic here, I do want to touch a little bit on that supply. And I think I'll start honestly with Justin, since I'm going to kind of quote a tweet that you were talking about here on your profile. You recently reposted a tweet that indicated a supply squeeze in uranium is on the horizon. And you've also tweeted references for the potential of uranium becoming a, quote, generational wealth event. Now, given the seemingly endless cries of any given stock, sector, or topic becoming a generational wealth event, what are your thoughts here on what makes uranium different? And I'd like to kick this one around the panel too, that, that topic of uranium being different from other energy sources. Sure. Well, I think it, it mainly that type of statement is mainly observing historical very, very large cycles in this sector. So the, this particular commodity has undergone two major price spike periods through through its history since uh, commercial nuclear really um, came on the scene back in the 50s and then really ramped up 70s and 80s and we had uh, abundant supply come online after that uh, after that second price spike and after that point we had as Jordan mentioned a lot of secondary supply in the market that helped to buffer a supply shortfall that's existed for quite some time and one of the big differences right now is that that secondary supply just isn't there insufficient volume. So in the previous price spike that went from 
kind of the bottoming period of, of let's say, 03, the peak in 07, uh, we we did have a very minor supply deficit, nothing like we're seeing here today, but we also had a lot of secondary supply. Uh, so much of that was a, approximately 20 million pounds of uranium per year coming into the market from the megatons, the megawatts program, which was down blending nuclear warheads and making um, uh, uh, low enriched uranium available to the commercial market. And that's essentially like the biggest mine in the world producing uranium into the market. That's not there. That ended in 2013. A lot of the underfeeding that uh, we probably don't have the time to get in the weeds on that, but basically it's secondary supply coming from enrichment. Enrichment uh, when enrichers have sufficient excess capacity, they can they can spin material down a little bit more than they normally would and sell that extra feedstock into the market. So underfeeding from the West was about 10 million pounds a year. That's essentially gone from the Western enrichers right now. So we have a big deficit and not a lot of secondary supply to kind of cushion that deficit at least not right now and not in the foreseeable future. Um, so as far as it being a generational event, this this commodity has gone through historical very, very large swings. And um, if you do the supply and demand work, they're relatively easy to predict without having a precise time frame. Um, it was pretty clear going back years that we would see a recovery in the price of uranium. And now I think we're in this environment where there's limited pounds and there's uh, pretty decent, robust demand fundamentals. Demand is relatively stable and easy to model and growing. And the supply is constrained. So uh, it's it's arguable that we'll see in the next year or two multiple entities in uh, sort of a, a competition in the market for limited pounds available. And what that could do to prices is, is sort of anyone's guess at this point. Thank you, Justin. I'm going to kick to Jordan here. Kind of what are you seeing as, you know, from your point of view as a CEO in the space, how are companies dealing with this gap in supply and demand? Well, yeah, you know, just getting back to the, you know, this, the, there was this glut of secondary supply built up. You had the megatons to megawatts pro program, as Justin pointed out. You also had, just going historically, looking at it historically in 06, 07, when you had the price, um, the spot price reach uh, over $135 a pound. Um, in today's dollars, that's around $200 a pound. So we're still only about half of that previous high. And back in the mid 70s, it was even higher than that in inflation adjusted terms. But that spike in 06, 07, not only did you have the megatons to megawatts program, uh, you had underfeeding, you had other sources of secondary supply, you had the largest producer of uranium in the world, Kazakhstan currently, in mid ramp up from basically no production or very little production in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, to 50 to 60 million pounds a year. Um, so, uh, and, and you had Cigar Lake as well, which there was one of the reasons there was the price spike was the flooding at Cigar Lake. Now those, that, that production had not come online yet, but was expected to, and basically pushed out several years. So, uh, you know, the, the, it's really fascinating right now watching this market kind of evolve because yes, there are similarities to what we've seen in previous bull markets, but you know, as, as, as Justin and I are talking about, there's, you know, there's a real constrained supply side currently, and it's not easy building these mines. We've seen in just in the last building and, and operating these mines, right? We've seen just in the last six months here, several pretty meaningful uh, supply uh, uh, cuts and, and downgrades in particular at Kazatomprom and in Kazakhstan. And we, we saw in September last year, um, a smaller cut from um, uh, from Cameco in, in the Athabasca Basin. So the, you know these are it's one thing building the mine, funding the mine, getting the permits, obviously with uranium, 
Uh, it's a little bit different than building a copper or a gold mine or certainly other metals and, and uh, can, you know, can take longer. There, there are some new, um, um, newer mining methods and uh, I, well, ISR has been used extensively around the world, but uh, in the basin, Sabre is a new um, potential mining method that, uh, that, that's uh, going to be utilized here. So there, there are some new kind of mining methods and techniques that could help expedite some of that. But bottom line is it, it takes a while to build uh, these mines. And then ultimately it's, it's challenging just to keep um, the production levels at, you know, steady rates, right. And, and, and supply disruptions do happen. And what we're seeing right now is the market respond um, quite meaningfully to any supply disruption or supply cuts going forward. And so, you know, there's this precarious supply side situation that's playing out as we're seeing the demand side continue to uh, continue to grow. And, uh, and uh, so it's, you know, it's kind of a, a bit of a, you know, a perfect storm that's brewing right now. And so, you know, when you get back to the, the question of, you know, the, the kind of generational wealth, I mean, you know, we'll see how things play out. It's, you know, it's always tough to predict. Um, you know, how these markets uh, end up playing out. But there's no question that, you know, uranium miners as one of really the only kind of pure play direct ways to get uh, pure exposure to the commodity. There are several physical holding companies and, you know, there are other ways to to play the commodity, but it's not like other, um, you know, other metals or other commodities where there's a vast array of investment products and instruments and companies out there that you can, you can invest in to get exposure. It's still relatively less saturated, if you will. So, you, you know, investors looking to get exposure to uranium as the nuclear fuel for, for nuclear power generation, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at the uranium mining equities and the, and the combined market cap of all of the publicly traded uranium mining companies is still around 70 billion. It's not huge. It's a, you know, relative drop in the bucket. If you back out Cameco and Kazatomprom, that gets cut in half. So the, the smaller and mid-cap names and developers even are, you know, uh, about 30 to 35 billion in combined market cap. So, you know, the, the money that is starting to come into the space uh, is, you know, kind of working its way through quite quickly. And, and one of the things that I think will uh, be a, co uh, you know, a common theme here. Uh, over the course of the next few years, as the bull market matures, is you're going to start to see, I believe, the outperformance of the mid and smaller caps relative to the, the much larger companies like the Camacos uh, as money works its way down. And, you know, typically you see that where smaller and mid cap mining equities outperform later in the cycle. We saw that in 06, 07, uh, and I think we're going to see it here uh, in the next few years. Thank you, Jordan. It'd be really interesting to watch, I think. Now, just kind of for some backdrop on the entire topic of uranium as a whole, as an energy source, I want to pick on you a little bit here, Nick, just from the science side of things. The, the argument on energy has been going seemingly forever. I just broke into my 30s and it seems like clean energy versus oil, et cetera, has been just screaming from my television ever since I was a little kid. And the pundits of oil versus those of nuclear, wind, hydro, et cetera, have been butting heads sometimes to pretty extreme measures. So, Nick, I'm wondering, from the point of view, with all of your experience in nuclear engineering, what genuinely sets nuclear energy aside from other energy sources such as coal and oil? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's it's it's there's a 
their nuclear bonds, as opposed to chemical bonds, have 2 million times more energy per bond in them. And the physical implications are just really almost magical and astounding. And it gives these huge macroscopic advantages of nuclear power versus any chemically derived type of energy source. And so, I mean, the implications were first uh for, for, for a power plant were first clearly demonstrated way back in the early 50s by Admiral Rickover, who put um, a nuclear reactor as the power source of, of a submarine. And the difference in capability in a nuclear-powered submarine versus a diesel or oil-powered submarine is, is so astounding. And I mean, I'll just give a few examples. They... Uh, a chemically powered submarine has to have oxygen to do combustion. And so you have to have like a snorkel coming up, you have exhaust gas coming up. And so you can be submerged for, you know, a while, a couple of days, and then um, you have to come back up or you have to be at very low power. You can't be going fast. You used to just sort of lurk out there. And then when a ship would come by, you could shoot a, a torpedo at it. But with nuclear power, again, with 2 million times more energy in sort of the same area fitting in that little submarine, it's just crazy they they immediately took the nautilus the first submarine and they took it up under the north pole for the first time they circumnavigated the the whole planet on, in one go um and they could just go it's just a completely different machine really incredible stuff and then i mean on the on the commercial power side it's it's this it's similar advantages i mean you can get a year and a half of fuel in a core at once you can have multiple years of fuel on site um, you run with basically no nothing emitted. You have no air pollution coming out. You have no CO2, and it can run 24-7. And you can still have this huge supply of fuel sort of on site, whereas a, a coal plant will typically see like a mile-long train car of coal come through every single day. <laughs> so uh, the, the overall implications sort of from strategic point of view, from environmental point of view, from energy stability point of view are just really amazing. And it all comes from that physics advantage of using nuclear bonds instead of chemical bonds. That's, that's the basics of it, at least. I'll take it. Thank you, Nick. And, and I'm honestly, I might, I might pick your bane real quick here since we're on this topic before mm. I kick back over to Jordan and Justin here. Could you just, and it can be, I mean, as, as in depth as you're feeling up to, mm -hmm. or as very view as you'd like, can you touch on the difference between nuclear fission and fusion and why fusion would be such a breakthrough in the commercial space should it occur? Sure. Um, I actually I, I became interested in nuclear engineering because of fusion way back many years ago. Um, that's what sort of brought me. And I sort of had this impression that fission was you know, not great and fusion was the future. And so I got into fusion research and did some interesting stuff in it something called a Z-pinch uh, experiment back in college. Anyway, I mean, um, fusion is, they're both forms of nuclear energy. They come from the atomic nucleus. Fusion is energy if you take smaller, small atoms, small nuclei like hydrogen and um, other small atoms and bring them really close together. They're pushing apart from each other because of, you know, they're both positive charged and they, so they're sort of magnetically opposing. But if you can push them hard enough that they get close and the nuclei actually touch, they will fuse together. And that is an exothermic reaction. It releases this vast amount of nuclear energy when that happens. And that's what the sun is doing. It's, you know, the gravity of the sun is bringing those hydrogen ions close together. They're fusing. That makes sun, uh, that makes 
the the power of the sun, which powers basically all life on Earth. Um, and so, and fusion and trying to get that to happen on Earth has been done for years. And we've we certainly have achieved fusion reactions. Um, we have thermonuclear weapons uh, back in the fifties. We have little we have accelerators, and we have a number of power plants, uh, or sorry, not power plants, of experiments that are trying to set up the conditions that will bring those at those atoms close enough together to fuse. None of those have ever produced net energy is the problem because the engineering of it's very hard. Fission, on the other hand, we have used in commercial power plants since at least the 1960s. Um, they make, uh, you know, half of the clean energy in the United States. We've got a hundred of or 94 of them here. Uh, they're the biggest source of energy in Europe at the moment. So, um, the difference there is that you're taking very large atoms like uranium and you're just shooting a little neutron at it. And what happens is that neutron goes in there and it acts like a match. The atom just becomes unstable and just immediately breaks into two pretty large chunks. And when that happens, it also releases a huge amount of nuclear energy. It's kind of weird. You split a big atom that releases energy. If you join a small or two small atoms that also produces energy. Um, vision is conceptually much, or from an engineering point of view, fission is basically trivial. All you have to do is put the um, the atoms close enough together, stick a neutron source in there, and they just start making heat. Um, and they, it's a chain reaction. One neutron causes splits an atom, which releases the energy plus a few other neutrons, which go on to split the nearby atoms. And so you can just kind of stand by and it'll release gigawatts of heat as you operate the control rods. It's very easy from an engineering point of view. The disadvantage is that those two big atoms, um, when you split it, those are highly radioactive. They slowly emit a little bit extra energy and that ends up being a health concern. So whereas with fusion, when you combine those atoms, generally there's a lot less residual radiation from the byproducts. So the big, the big advantage of fusion would be the big excitement from fusion is you can get all that nuclear energy, um, but you don't make the, uh, the high level nuclear waste that comes out. So now in terms of like actual supply of fuel, there's also been this idea that, well, fusion fuel, there's a lot more fusion fuel on earth. And that's, probably true i mean you can there's deuterium and tritium in, in in water and you can breed extra tritium from lithium there's vast quantities of nuclear fuel in fusion form for sure it'll last you know you could power the world for billions of years using the available fusion fuel however you can also kind of say that with fission um, if we just mine uranium and and burn it in the types of reactors that we currently use you may run low we only we only split about one percent of the actual uranium atoms that we mine uh, just because the reactors we currently run are not very good at splitting a high number of atoms but there are things called breeder reactors that we built and demonstrated again back in the 50s which can get uh, 90 percent of those atoms split from uranium and so if you do switch over to breeder reactors um, then the uranium resources and the thorium resources can last probably also billions of years at least hundreds of millions of years using fission so there isn't like a huge difference in overall sustainability between the two although fusion is better they're both extraordinarily long uh so yeah the major advantage is is just that um the fusion will make less waste there the, from the commercial point of view, I think there's a lot of excitement, maybe hype about fusion will be like super cheap. I don't actually 
personally buy that at the moment. It's certainly possible. Like if you don't have the radiation hazard or at least as much of a radiation hazard, maybe you can build an upright effusion power plant for cheap. But that's not for sure. Uh, the, the technical challenge, the engineering challenge of what it takes to bring those atoms close together may be very expensive, even if even without the radiation hazard. So like whether or not um, when we do get when we can finally figure out how to get actual power from fusion, which is I mean, it'll happen someday, but it hasn't happened yet. It's very hard. Um, and then once we do, there will be a big breakthrough. People say we finally got net energy from fusion, but it'll be a thousand times more expensive than natural gas at first or whatever. And so then there will be this big period where um, people try to make fusion plants that are more economical. And there's it's a total unknown whether or not that will be possible. Certainly people say it's possible and they're going to do it in two years or three years. But um, whether or not that actually happens is totally up for debate. I'll stop there. Fair enough. Thank you so much, Nick. I think that's really good information to have as we kind of go through this topic. So I do kind of want to just pivot a little bit back to back to the topic we had just regarding the general bullish sentiment on uranium that seems to be echoed across pretty much every investing circle I tune into. Uh, Jordan, what are some of the upcoming catalysts for Sky Harbor specifically and for the uranium markets as a whole. I know we already talked a bit about the supply and demand situation. And I, I'm also curious about something you mentioned earlier about the smaller to mid caps. How, how are you feeling currently about Sky Harbor's market cap at current levels? Yeah, well, um, I think given where we're at in the cycle, I still think we're in the earlier days versus the later days. And, and you know, as as is typical with these mining cycles, these these commodity cycles, with the equities, the the mining equities, um, uh, you you do see typically outperformance in in the latter part of the cycle with the smaller and mid caps. And the reasons for that are simple: you you have money that initially flows into the more liquid, larger names, um, the producers typically, and you know as investors are uh, you know looking for a little more leverage or torque to a rising commodity price and or, you know, they've, they've hit their target price in that investment and, and they look to take some profits, but they still believe in the commodity thesis and it playing out. They'll, you know, that capital will flow down. Um, you know, for Sky Harbor, we're, we're a smaller cap company um, at about a $90 million Canadian market cap. We're, we're, we're actually one of the larger, call it exploration companies, uh, in the Athabasca Basin. So just a quick high-level summary of the company. Been around for 10 years. Um, we were there 10 years ago when post-Fukushima and when commodity, uh, when uranium prices were um, well below $25 a pound. Um, you know, we were there with a, a very contrarian strategy, acquiring projects at very attractive valuations. We were one of really only a few companies that was doing that. 10 years ago, and we've been able to build up what is now by acreage, the third largest mineral tenure holding in northern Saskatchewan in a region called the Athabasca Basin, which is the highest grade depository of uranium in the world. The average grade of a deposit in the basin is usually about 10 to 20 times that uh, of the uh, of the global average. And so what that means is when you're out there looking for new deposits or delineating and expanding existing resources, de-risking deposits so that they can be developed into mines, um, these are uh, you know potentially massive returns associated with 
that discovery and resource delineation process. We've seen recent uh, discoveries and successes in the basin uh, that have yielded many billions of dollars in returns for investors that you know basically bought in before the discovery and held through the discovery and resource uh, delineation phase of that mining company. And so that's that's where we're at. We're out there with. Uh, again, one of the largest land positions at one, over 1.2 million acres across 25 projects. But we, uh, you know, unlike I'd say other exploration companies, we, we do offer a little more of a variety of, uh, you know, exploration projects ranging from earlier stage, more grassroots exploration properties right through to more advanced stage exploration assets that either host small uranium resources and or high grade uranium mineralization in previous drilling. So at our main project, for example, Moore Lake, there's a small high grade deposit there. We're working on a resource estimate and we're going to be drilling it here shortly, another uh, 3000 meters. It's it's had grades as high as 21% U308 over a meter and a half uh, within six meters of 6% U308. So very high grade uranium mineralization. And that's adjacent to our other of advanced stage co-flagship uh, exploration project called Russell Lake. And both of these projects are strategically located south of the MacArthur River mine, the, the largest, richest uranium mine in the world, uh, owned and operated by Cameco, and then one of two operating mills in the region, the Key Lake Mill, just to the south. So uh, those are the two main assets. And the other projects um, that are, you know, some of which are earlier stage, uh, fit into our prospect generator business. So much like a let's say a tech incubator would go in and incubate various tech companies. And we, we, we kind of do that similar idea with uranium uh, projects in the Athabasca Basin. We'll, over the course of that 10 years, we've built up this big property package and, and we'll go in and we'll do some work. We'll, we'll incubate these projects and then we'll look for partner companies to come in and we'll farm out uh, and, uh, usually a majority interest whereby the partner company spends cash and shares, uh, pays us in cash and shares and spends money in the uh, exploration and advancement of the project. Uh, so that's, you know, combined project consideration that's coming into Sky Harbor. Uh, and they basically take the reins and we retain a minority interest, usually a royalty, as well as an equity position if the company's public. So, um, you know, we're, we're gearing up for, you know, what will be our kind of busiest year that we've ever had as a company with multiple drill programs, fully funded, fully permitted at our main assets, Russell and Moore Lake, as well as several partner funded drilling programs and exploration and field programs at various other properties uh, throughout the Athabasca Basin. So we're really trying to become the one-stop shop for investors looking for high-grade uranium exploration and discovery exposure across a variety of projects um, in the Athabasca Basin, which again is, in my view, the best place to be looking for developing and producing uranium globally. Thank you, Jordan. It does it does really sound like Sky Harbor's pretty set up there in the basin. And I, I definitely will have a couple of follow-up questions there as well. But real quick, for now, I want to kick back to kind of kind of the tack on supply and demand. And I, I want to touch on something the US Department of Energy issued last year that request for proposals for uranium enrichment services to help establish a reliable domestic supply of fuels using high assay, low enriched uranium. Following that bill in December that stated the U.S. aims to cease Russian imports of uranium by 2040. 
So I'm curious, and I'm going to kick this around the panel, so anybody feel free to chime in, but we'll start with Justin here. What kind of effects would we expect to see with more U.S. output and less imports from the largest uranium producer in the world? And what do they kind of aim to aim to achieve? Well, I think, you know, the, the overall goal at this point is to improve upon the domestic sourced nuclear fuel, generally speaking. There's uh, a highlighted focus on on HALU, high assay, low enriched uranium, as you mentioned, which is the fuel that will theoretically be used in advanced reactors. So kind of Gen 5 reactors. Um, many of these are smaller. There's two demonstration projects currently happening in the United States that's partially being funded by the DOA, and that's uh, TerraPower's Natrium Reactor. This is a Bill Gates um, co-founded company that is uh, aiming to build this reactor, this small modular reactor in the state of Wyoming, essentially replacing what was previously a coal-powered plant. And then the other one is X Energy's XE100 that's uh, set to be built in the state of Washington. Like I said, both of these have DOE support. Neither of these designs has been approved by uh, by the Na uh, Nuclear Regulatory Commission as of yet. In fact, I don't believe either of them have submitted applications. Um, but that's a slower process. So this is this is a multi multi year process with the aim of moving in the direction of implementing new nuclear in the United States. And at this point, there's a focus on the small modular reactors, advanced reactors. As far as establishing more domestic uh, low enriched uranium, which is what's utilized in the light water boiling water fleet of the United States, um, that's that's part of this recent RFP as well, and that that's really honestly that's should be more of a focus in my personal opinion currently than the focus on Halu, uh, and that's because we rely entirely on on foreign entities to provide enriched uranium. So yes, Uranco is a is an allied uh, company. It's operated by um, it, it's, excuse me, it's owned by the UK and they have a facility in New Mexico. So that does produce some domestically, but it's not domestically owned. And then the other major Western enricher is Arana, which is French owned. So we do have allied nations producing low enriched uranium, but we still have been importing on average, basically up to the limitations of the Russian suspension agreement on an annual basis, which is about 25% of the annual needs of enriched uranium is coming from Russia. Even this past year, we imported uh, substantially more than that limitation in the RSA, seemingly in an effort to pull forward as much enrichment delivery as we possibly could, with the possibility that the Senate will eventually pass the legislation that's currently at their desk that aims to ban the importation of Russian enriched uranium. Whether or not that passes, I don't know. It looks like it's likely to pass. There are waivers within this legislation that would allow domestic nuclear utilities to continue to receive material from Russia on an ongoing basis all the way out to December 31st of 2027. But there is as well an industry fear that Russia could potentially retaliate in response to this legislation passing and voluntarily cut off exporting material. So nuclear utilities in the U.S. Um, pulled forward quite a bit of deliveries of Russian uranium going, going back last year. Uh, but either way, there's overall kind of a highlighted point on energy security. This is not just here in the U.S. This is globally. Um, certainly, that's been the case in the EU with Russia essentially weaponizing energy um, since the invasion of Ukraine. And so if you're focusing on security of supply, security of energy, with 20, almost 20% of our grid in the United States being nuclear, makes sense that 
all elements of the fuel cycle would be supported by the federal government in some way or another to kind of get it together. We, we produce almost zero uranium in the United States and consume about 45 million pounds a year. So last year, I think we produced one or 200,000 pounds uh, while the annual consumption, like I said, 40, around 45 million pounds a year. So we likely will never again domestically produce that much uranium um, between our outlets certainly have, for the most part, most, the, the majority export of uranium to the world really is Kazakhstan, and that's the same, the same uh, situation in the United States. So between Kazakhstan and Russia, the United States is highly, highly reliant on imported material. The seemingly the Department of Energy is, is aiming to uh, try to address through these various RFPs. Thank you, Justin. Jordan or Nick, did you have anything to add what Justin said there? I, I think uh, it was a great summary. And, you know, again, I think it just emphasizes the need for uh, new supplies to come online uh, in Canada, um, in other parts of the West. Um, I, I, you know, if you look at um, uh, the need also for, again, this, you know, these new generation of reactors um, that, that, you know, are coming on. Um, and you look at, in particular, the contract um, uh, uh, books of the largest producers like Kazatomprom and Cameco even uh, out three to four to five years. I mean, a lot of the materials contracted or accounted, uh, uh, spoken for. So, you know, new production uh, urgently needs to come on. Um, you know, it's, as we talked about earlier, it's, it's not easy to do just that. Um, but, you know, we are seeing it, not just in the U.S., also in Canada, and even at, you know, at the exploration level, we are seeing, you know, the government get behind this. Um, a good example, just in the last year and a half, two years, uh, a new tax credit that the Canadian government implemented called the CMETC, uh, Critical Mineral Exploration Tax Credit, uh, allows uh, exploration companies um, looking for uranium and other critical minerals basically to raise uh, money at a 50% premium. So for every dollar coming in at uh, the back end from an investor, um, $1.50 comes into the company. And that, that money actually needs to be spent uh, exploring and advancing uh, those critical mineral properties. So, you know, we're seeing it at the, you know, at, at the, at the nuclear fuel level, we're seeing it all the way upstream to the exploration and development companies where these Western governments are, incentivizing um, you know more development and the advancement of these projects domestically and in other allied countries thank you much yeah, nick yeah i would just i mean yeah the summary was good i i think it's worth emphasizing i mean the we kind of the industry the nuclear industry sort of got i guess addicted to cheap russian uranium and it's not just the uranium supply it's the enrichment services as well as was mentioned but um it puts us in a bit of a pickle. I mean, right now, I think James Krellenstein did a white paper that said that like one out of 20 American homes is a totally dependent on Russian uranium. And if Russia decides to just cut that off, like there's no way to get uh, the fuel to reload the reactors on schedule. And like those, it would be a, a pretty serious issue. And so this is kind of embarrassing. Um, and if we want, we sort of were originally saying, oh, you know, <laughs> Europe's, dependent on gas from Russia, like that's silly, they should do nuclear, but like, oops, actually nuclear is totally dependent on Russia for uranium and uranium services. So that's a bad situation that needs to be reconciled. And so, yeah, getting more uh, non-Russian production, non-Russian enrichment services up and running is pretty important to be able to get out of that kind of a situation. So it's, it's kind of a, it's not where we want to be.
Thank you, Nick. So I want to continue on this topic of, you know, production in North America specifically. Now, in the U.S., the Vodal Units 3 and 4 have been a pretty hot topic as they mark the first newly constructed nuclear units in over 30 years, I think it was. Uh, so let's let's just start with Nick here again, and then we'll kick around the panel Building out is one of the major focuses of those who advocate, just so we can, again, pull back on some of the uranium reliance that the U.S. has on foreign countries for their production. How momentous is it that these two new plants have opened? And I think the fourth one just went critical by a tweet that Jennifer put out the other day. Uh, how momentous is this? And does this really pave the way for more plants to be started in the States? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's yeah, and sorry, Jennifer, because you'd be great to answer this. If you if your mic starts working, just interrupt me. Feel free. Um, yeah, it's very momentous. I mean, the the projects were they boondoggled for sure. They're you know twice as expensive as expected, and they took twice as long. But notwithstanding the accomplishment of reestablishing a previously totally dormant nuclear construction industry is a massive accomplishment and really should be celebrated. And they did just bring that, that uh, second AP 1000 critical, I think, I guess it was yesterday. Um, it's, it's just, it's just awesome. And these are great plants. They're built on experience from the previous fleet. So they're the A in AP 1000 stands for advanced. <laughs> Although some people don't say they're advanced reactors, they are truly advanced in that they have brought in the experience of, of, you know, real lived operational lessons learned and they adjusted the design and we just brought them online here in the United States. We have a team of people who knows how to build them. We have a supply chain and the design is hundred percent complete. Like we know, uh, as opposed to a paper reactor, a reactor that's still in the development phase, we know every little detail of that, those types of reactors is understood and can actually be constructed and put into operation. And so now the question is, so we could, you know, just say, okay, let's build 10 of those, let's build 20. Um, and there's a pretty good chance that you could pull something off like what France did when they chose a, a completed standardized design and build a bunch of them right in a row. And that's really the proven way to expand nuclear rapidly. Uh, however, no one's really talking about that. The projects were so expensive that most people are saying like, nope, no one's ever going to buy one of these again. There's no, there's no utility that can afford one. There's no project team that can pull it off. And so we're in a, it's kind of a, it's another tough spot where that technology is ready to go. The people are there and we can go off and do it, but we just don't have like a pathway to find out like who's going to build the next three or 10 or whatever. And so meanwhile, we have dozens and dozens of smaller efforts um, developing uh, newer technologies or um, technology reactors that haven't, that don't have that operational experience. They may, they have higher performance. They can do high temperature, they can do process heat. They may be more efficient with their uranium, but they don't have that advantage of operational experience. And so they have to go through this huge learning curve of not just getting constructed, getting that supply chain, um, and then turn it on. And then once you turn on, you know, you usually have at least five years of like shakedown when you have to sort of adjust your technology, you might get some leaks you got to fix. This has happened all throughout history. And so it's relatively likely in any new 
reactor build. And so we've got a lot of people focused on that and like basically nobody focused on building the next one of these uh, Vogel type units, the AP-1000. So it's it's another like pickle that we have to figure out how to get through. But if we do it, then yeah, I mean, it's the the fact that we build two new big reactors is is so exciting and I'm so happy to have the industry sort of back on its feet. But I'm just concerned that, you know, how are we going to take that next step and really take advantage of that experience and, and build the next 10 or whatever. 10 sounds like a really good thing if that if that oh, comes yeah. to fruition i'd say jordan and justin do you have anything to add to what nick said um I, the only thing i i keep thinking about is that i i completely agree with nick i i would love to see more of these ap1000s or other designs of large light water boiling water reactors being built in the states and the united states is making very large proclamations in terms of their plan for the future of nuclear without really making a solid step-by-step -step plan. So for example, um, the DOE put out something called a liftoff report last year. And they did that for through three different industries. Uh, one was nuclear, one was renewables. The other, I think, was hydrogen, if I recall correctly. And in this liftoff report, they basically said that small modular reactors could theoretically replace 85% of the coal plant sites operating and retired in the United States, um, they, they aimed for a, a doubling or maybe it was even a tripling of nuclear to meet carbon neutrality goals. And these are very lofty goals. And to, in order for tr the United States, let alone the world, which was the goal, I suppose, in theory, uh, that was proposed by this consortium of, of countries, at the COP28 conference, I think 24 countries signed this proclamation uh, with the intention to jointly commit to tripling nuclear capacity by 2050. This is an absolutely enormous undertaking in terms of uh, the skilled labor force and building out the nuclear fuel cycle, let alone actually building the reactors or powering that with sufficient mining of uranium or perhaps new technologies with higher price environment for extracting uranium from seawater, from phosphates, etc. These things are all on the table for future production of uranium. It's just a huge undertaking. And I would really, really love to see some further and more, um, more specific support coming from the federal government of exactly how we're going to meet those goals. So it's, it's wonderful to see these goals being stated. And it's great to see things like within the Inflation, uh, in, uh, Inflation Reduction Act that was passed last year, there are... Uh, clean energy production and clean energy investment tax credits that's certainly aiding the industry right now so most if not all of the aging reactors in the united states that are coming up for retirement in the next five to ten years many of those and some of those are already actually filing applications for life extensions and those life extensions are going to be financially supported through these clean energy production tax credits so that was a very very big move and it largely de-risked the largest fleet in the world having the money from the IRA for that. But it'd be great to see some uh, some on the ground, very specific steps of how we're going to build new nuclear United States. That's not yet something we've seen. They've scratched the surface with the, with the funding of, or the partial funding of these demonstration projects, the two SMRs I already mentioned. But it'd be great to see further build outs. Of course, we're seeing announcements of um, uh, MOUs and, and, and LOIs across, across the globe right now of countries building out new nuclear. 
the Baraka plant in uh, in the UAE. I think it's a four-unit plant at this point. I believe they're planning on building more. Absolutely astounding success story um, between uh, the UAE and the South Koreans on those builds. Just just phenomenally successful projects. And we're seeing more and more of these projects being announced almost on a weekly basis. So the growth for nuclear looks very, very promising, but it'd be great to see former nuclear leaders like the United States step up and say, we're going to be building more large reactors. This is what it's going to look like. This is how we're going to do it, et cetera, et cetera. So that does kind of bring me to a topic I wanted to touch on. I know we might go a little over our hour, but this is one I really wanted to touch. Just kind of on that topic of the IRA, I think I think the IRA was providing up to... $500 million for HALU enrichment contracts. And together, the United States, Canada, Japan, France, and I think the United Kingdom have announced a collective plan to mobilize upwards of $4.2 billion in government-led spending to kind of help develop safe and secure nuclear energy supply chains. And I kind of wonder here, A, one of the main things that I came across in terms of nuclear energy and infrastructure for it is the astronomical cost. And so I guess this is a bit of a two-part question, and we'll start with Jordan, then just kick it around the panel with Justin and Nick. Aside from funding, what what will it take for larger countries to kind of take the effort and expense to transition to nuclear? And then as a tie-on to that, is $4.2 billion seemingly globally enough to help with these supply chains and help develop new reactors? Well, you know, I think the first step, which we're seeing and we've talked about is, you know, the, the general sentiment improving the push, the desire on the part of the governments and, and the people to, you know, see this happen. So, you know, we can check that box. That's, that's, that is happening. Um, and we've seen a major shift in particular in the West, again, on the back of these decarbonization and carbon neutrality objectives. Um, but, you know, as I think it's important to, again, take a step back, look, look at this globally, right, as, you know, Justin pointed out, um, you know, th those reactors coming online in the UAE are a perfect example of, you know, how this, how this should work. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it shows that, um, you know, these reactors can be built um, uh, you know, on, on time and, and, and relatively on budget, uh, for, you know, which has been an issue obviously for in the West. Um, I, let's just take Canada, for example. And, and, um, you know, recently we saw the announcement of, you know, the first, uh, SMR small modular reactor, um, being built at the Darlington plant, uh, in Ontario. And, uh, immediately there was a $1 billion, uh, investment made uh, by the Canadian Infrastructure Bank to fund that. So that's, you know, that's, that's tangible. That's something that's happening. And I, you know, I, you know, as Justin pointed out, I, I, I think there are more of that, um, you know, more hands-on um, tangible events and, and, and things like that in North America will help. But, you know, again, when we, you know, when we look at it globally, um, let's just take China, for example, uh, really kind of the leader, uh, in new nuclear and uranium demand growth, um, you know, I've announced that they have plans to build 150 new nuclear reactors in the next, call it 15 years, which would amount to more nuclear capacity and uranium demand coming online in China in the next 15 years and has come on globally in the last 35 years. They need a lot of electricity and they need it soon, right? And so, you know, when we look at, you know, the West versus other parts of the world, you know, there are a lot of differences. And I think, uh, you know, when we when we look at 
how the West can meet uh, these objectives, these goals. Um, yeah, we're going to need to see more um, conventional reactors, larger reactors, uh, but you know we need to get rid of some of the red tape um, that's bogged uh, the the industry down, in particular in the last few decades. Thank you, Jordan. Justin or Nick, anything to add to what Jordan said? Nope, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think you covered it well. Fair enough, guys. Thank you. So what I kind of want to do here at the tail end is I'm just going to kind of go through each of the panelists, and I do want to hear more about Sky Harbor specifically as well, especially in, in reference to unique positioning there in the Athabasca Basin versus other companies but first nick and justin is there anything that you wanted to add or touch on that we may not have had time for today or anything that you have that you're working on that will be coming out in the near future that people should check out let's start with nick um well i'm 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 continuing my this is sort of <clears throat> tangential i'm continuing an effort to uh i found like 400 old archived nuclear power films in the national archives on 16 millimeter films and i've been working <clears throat> to like pick out the interesting ones one sec and get them digitized and posted so just keep an eye out for uh for new publications of those old digitized videos on i, I post them on my account here and everything so that's something i'm really excited about i i'm hoping that some of them are inspiring like a lot of them are old reactor types that are actually super advanced some very high temperature high performance reactors that people um are, that are largely forgotten and so i kind of hope that somehow those those old videos will lead to new developments uh new startups and so on so that's just something i like to mention thanks thank you nick and thank you again for coming and i'm i'm kind of a sucker for historical films so i'll definitely <laughs> be on the lookout for that great yeah thanks Justin, anything you've got coming out on the horizon? Anything you wanted to add for the listeners today? Sounds like we might be having a connection issue there. I think that I can really think about that. Hello, can you hear me? Yep, okay? we can hear you now. Gotcha. Sorry about that. Um, Nothing, nothing really in the near term in terms of uh, some exciting expectations from us, really. But um, what we do primarily is focus on the physical, the physical market, the physical uranium market. So that's that's where we have our ear to the ground on a daily basis to try to understand what's going on there. But I suppose just a parting thought that was crossing my mind as I was uh, listening to Jordan and then Nick speak was that looking at uh, the global nuclear build out and the aspirations of China. And uh, the proclamations of the COP28 conference, there's, it's all very bright for the future of nuclear. And what makes this investing thesis so exciting, at least for me, is that we don't really need any of that to pan out for the next, let's say, three to five years to see what we're about to see happen for the price of uranium because of what I mentioned at the beginning of this space is in terms of the industry's um, slow response time to a rising price environment. That's the gears are turning. Supply is starting to respond, but we're talking about 30 to 50 million pounds a year. That's going to have to come online in order to reach a balanced market. Uh, even notwithstanding the growth that's expected in the industry during that same time period. 
and the declining production from the existing mine. So the next three to five years is sort of already baked in um, compared to, I mean, assuming that we don't have, let's say, another Fukushima type accident, which there's always the chance that happens, that would obviously affect sentiment to the negative, um, at least in the short term. But the real reason that we had such a long bear market following the Fukushima Daiichi accident had to do with destruction of demand with the Japanese fleet coming offline. They've restarted 11 reactors currently. They still are sticking with their goals of having 20 to 22% of their electricity grid being provided by nuclear, which would require almost another 20 reactors to restart between now and the next five years. That seems pretty ambitious in my estimation, but I think we'll see uh, continued restarts from the Japanese. And then just looking out into the future, I think some of these incredible success stories like the Brock plant UAE, um, you're, to your point, why they're so expensive, really what that was the total process, which one of the biggest mistakes with that project was that construction essentially began before the engineering was complete. And so there was some element of figure it out as we go baked into that project that certainly led to cost overruns and time overruns. And then, of course, the sizable project in the UK is also over budget. So these two projects really seem to inform that narrative, while at the same time we see three, four, five, six reactors in China hit the grid every single year that are being produced on time and on budget. Yes, there's different dynamics in China as a communist country relative to you know the, the capitalist free market uh, that affects things differently in terms of these large scale projects and unions and all of that. But it's not just China, it's in the UAE, it's in South Korea, um, it's in India. Uh, there's countries around the world. It doesn't take a whole lot of, of uh, sincere investigation into the sector to recognize that nuclear actually is the safest form of electricity generation ever conceived um, in terms of, let's say, lives lost per gigawatt hour produced. Just pick your metric. It's the safest. Um, most people don't know that. Um, and then you also have questions about the waste. And again, I'm sure that Nick could answer this even better. And I know you didn't ask, but it's the industry Okay, so outside the industry, people always ask about the waste, and we've got a problem with the waste, a problem with the waste. Inside the industry, the waste is something that the industry is actually somewhat proud of. Why? There's never been an accident with the waste. It's highly, highly regulated, and it's such a tiny amount relative to the enormous amount of electricity that's produced by a single plant over its lifespan. The waste is a negligible talking point for the industry. But for whatever reason, it's a focus of folks outside the industry. And I think that that's slowly shifting. We're seeing perception shift. It's been an utter sea change in sentiment from the public generally, especially in countries like Japan, like Germany, even the United States, majority in favor of nuclear. Um, so it's been an absolute renaissance for the sector. It's something we didn't expect when we were first looking at this sector from an investment perspective back in, let's say, 2017 as a contrarian investment to see a full-on renaissance in nuclear. And that's kind of what we're in the early stages of. We think this investment has legs, at least for the next, let's say, three to five years before we hopefully see somewhat of a balanced market on the mining side of things. But I'm also just an unabashed nuclear advocate. I'm really hoping for um, sustained high prices for the commodity so it will incentivize production in ways that we aren't even imagining right now so that we can expand nuclear to the extent of these goals that have been being stated by countries around the world to double and triple capacity in order to meet these carbon neutrality goals, clean energy goals, 
And then, of course, even aside from that factor, looking at security of supply goals and nuclear wins, hands down on that front. So an exciting place to be. I do appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you being here, Justin. Thank you so much for lending your insight today. Jordan, to send our folks off, can you just break down a little bit more of Sky Harbor's positioning and kind of how you're aiming to handle that increased demand for uranium? And I would also love if you could kind of tell people where they can find your listings if they're interested in following along with Sky Harbor's journey, interested in investing. Where can folks find you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we, we're dual listed. We Our main listing is on the TSX Venture under the symbol SYH. It is a Canadian company, but we do have um, a OTCQX listing in the United States, which is uh, list, the, the ticker there is SYHBF. You can go to our website, skyharborltd.com. Um, all of the pertinent information is on the website and uh, tough to follow up on Justin. He does a great job with, with, with his research, uh, Uranium Insider. But one, one other thing just to kind of note too, I was thinking about, um, you know, in addition to the supply side response that we're talking about over the next several years that has to take place to meet, uh, to, to balance this market. Uh, uranium is an interesting commodity, unlike most others, where there's much less demand destruction as the price increases. And the reason for that is that the end buyer utility companies are less or uh, they're less sensitive to prices. There's there's price elasticity uh, as the uh, cost of, of operating and building a reactor. The fuel cost is a relatively small part of that. So as we see prices increase, uh, you see less demand destruction than you would otherwise see in other commodities. So that's another important kind of unique uh, characteristic of, of of this market. Uh, so you know, I, I needless to say, we're you know we're, we're bullish as a company, um, as as investors in the space. Uh, you know, I I talked a little bit about Sky Harbor, but we're um, you know, one of the leading exploration and, and prospect generation companies in the Athabasca Basin, advancing numerous projects, in particular our two co-flagship Russell and Moore Lake projects, uh, which are advanced stage exploration assets hosting high-grade uranium mineralization and drilling and or uh, small resources. Uh, we have eight partner companies uh, that we've brought in, three of which now are formal joint ventures. We just announced our third this morning, and then uh, five um, or sorry, four options, seven partners companies, three JVs, four um, option partners that are still actively earning in. Uh, if all of these option agreements are seen through to completion, that would represent uh, upwards of 80 million in combined project consideration coming in. So that's project funding from the partners as well as cash and shares. Uh, being um, uh, issued uh, to Sky Harbor from these partner companies. We've got three strategic partner, larger partner companies as well. Uh, Denison Mines is a, a large development company. They're our largest corporate shareholder. Their president and CEO, Dave Cates, is a director of Sky Harbor. Uh, we have Rio Tinto, one of the largest diversified mining companies in the world, is a large shareholder as a part of a property transaction we carried out with them to acquire the Russell Lake project. Uh, and they'll, they could very well become a joint venture with us at that property as well. And last but not least, we have Arano, France's largest uranium mining and nuclear fuel company, as a joint venture partner at the Preston Projects. So we have some very good strategic partners uh, and, and a very capable 
experienced management uh, team, board of directors and geological team that have made uranium discoveries uh, in the past, previous, previously working at Cameco and, and other successful uranium companies. So we have a good mix of uh, people that have built and sold uh, these uh, junior mining companies, uh, know how to raise capital, know how to build the company up, coupled with focused uranium exploration expertise in the Athabasca Basin. Thank you, Jordan. I'll definitely be on the lookout to see how some of those developments pan out. It sounds pretty exciting from your point of view, I'd say. Absolutely. So everybody, this will wrap up our nuclear space. A big thank you again to Jordan and to Sky Harbor for sponsoring the space and making it possible. A huge thank you to Justin and Nick for lending their expertise to us here today as well. Thank you again, Sky Harbor. Our next panel will be for FOMC at the end of the month, so be on the lookout for that. And have a great rest of your day, everybody. Thank you for coming. Thank you.